Why would anybody, particularly a critical race theorist, argue that any race is inherently inferior or superior because then you would end up arguing that white people are superior when really we're just like, actually the way that the law has been constructed has created these hierarchies, um, point to hundreds of laws over the years. And welcome, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, guys, gals, and non-binary pals to another episode of All the Above, the show that gives you an unstandardized take on education. I'm Jeffrey Garrett, one of your co-hosts, and I've been a middle and high school principal and a high school social studies teacher. And as always, I'm joined by... What up, family? It's Manuel Rustin, your favorite teacher's favorite teacher. I'm a high school teacher out here in the Los Angeles area. This is year 18 in the classroom for me, and this here, of course, is all of the above, your home for news and analysis of all matters pertaining to our world of education. Shout out to everybody who is joining us again for another super dope episode with a super dope guest. And this, if this is your first time around here, we hope you enjoy what you're watching or what you're listening to. And please do consider giving us that thumbs up or that five stars and all that good stuff because that really helps us get these conversations into more educators' feeds. Jeff, man, it's mid-April. Springtime is here. The end of the school year is... Within sight, it's within sight. We still have, you know, what, five or six weeks left, but we're getting there. We're getting there. How are you holding up this time of year? Oh, man. Well, uh, <laughs> I'm going to remove the fourth wall from this conversation for a moment <laughs> and say, even though what you just said is accurate from the time when people will see this episode, in reality, <laughs> it is the beginning of April, which means in school terms, it is basically still March, which is the longest freaking <laughs> month in the entire school year calendar, an entire 31 days with no breaks and, you know, just chaos and disruption um, and all of those things. So uh, I'll, I'm going to keep it 100% real with you right now. I'm, I'm struggling. I'm limping to the finish line <laughs> until we get to spring break here, man. Um, and, you know, in all seriousness, I'm doing okay, but it is, um, we are at that point in the year where you're like sprinting, sprinting along. And also you look ahead and you're like, oh my God, there's still like three more months to go. Uh, so, you know, okay. We can close the fourth wall again here. Uh, yes. Mid April, fresh off of spring break, man. Well, it's great. I'm feeling rejuvenated. All that. Nice, nice. Um, we have no fourth wall here. We're all family. We're all family. We're all in this together. And yeah, we record these video episodes a bit in advance because it takes time to edit these joints down. But it's weird when it comes to spring break for teachers because I know some teachers like right now, right now who are finishing their spring break. I myself am just now starting my spring break. And I know Los Angeles Unified and a whole bunch of other schools, their spring break isn't for a while, but I think it'll be around the time that this episode posts or something. So yeah, strange times, but I know we all need and deserve that break. So shout out to anybody out there who's able to enjoy or has already enjoyed their break. Um, and also, also Jeff, I suspect on the YouTubes, you know, we we post these on the YouTubes. That's not where most of our audience uh, finds us, but you know, we do post these shows on the on the YouTubes, and those can be um, tough streets, tough streets, especially for an episode like this, because I believe the algorithm here might kick up some folks into um, the AOTA <laughs> channel that might not normally visit the AOTA channel, because there's a few terms in our description today that might. Um, Let's say they might attract some folks who are not big fans of shows like ours. So what do we have on the agenda today, Jeff? What are, what are oh, folks yeah. going to be learning? <laughs> Man, well, today we are bringing the heat 
the fire for all the uh, conservative snowflakes out there in the world who uh, who love to call people bad names online and hide behind fake avatars and that kind of thing. Uh, man, well, I am genuinely uh, incredibly excited about uh, today's episode because we are digging into a topic that is very close to my heart with a guest who is, we, we have joked years ago that like, uh, we as, you know, as uh, black male educators are like unicorns in the system. Well, today we got a for real unicorn uh, in the system, Manuel, because uh, we're bringing on a guest who is quite literally the one person in the entire state of Mississippi, okay, which is like the most American state in certain kinds of ways, uh, who teaches actual, true, real critical race theory at the University of Mississippi School of Law. That's right, we have Professor Yvette Butler, again, the one individual who remaining, who teaches critical race theory in law school in the state of Mississippi, the state that uh, is the true essence of the history of America when it comes to our problematic racial past, which is not to either disparage Mississippi or let any other state off the hook. I'm just saying, come on, man. The one person teaching critical race theory in the state of Mississippi is here with us today to talk about actual, real critical race theory and not only set the record straight about what it is and what it isn't, but also to explore some of the issues from, from the education lens, right? This crazy national outrage we've seen against the boogeyman of CRT um, is also having an effect at the higher ed level, right? It impacting professors who actually teach critical race theory and all of the sort of related subjects and disciplines even outside of law schools uh, that also apply a critical lens to conversations about race and policy and other sorts of things. So um, fascinating discussion we're going to have today, uh, Manuel. I can't wait. And folks, I think you're going to love it. You definitely don't want to miss it. Critical race theory. Yeah, <laughs> that's, that's right, critical race. Uh, I think after today's episode, we're going to link at the bottom the 1776 uh, project uh, report. We, that just got so deleted. That we can... Remember, we have to find some bootleg. <laughs> oh, I still got it. I got it on PDF, man. We'll, <laughs> we'll link that joint for people. It's one of the more tragically remarkable documents ever created in American history. We got that for you, folks. Uh, and, you know, of course, because both sides, right? We want, we want both sides. <laughs> <laughs> Indeed. Indeed. Uh, All right, folks, you're in for a good one. But at first, we have our do now. We're going to take a look at some recent news in education, including a story about um, iPad hall passes and teachers and Airbnb. We'll see what's going on there. Stay tuned. All right, folks, now it's time for today's do now. Let's take a look at recent headlines in the world of education. Jeff, how are we going to do the do now today? Well, Manuel, today we got uh, my favorite way, as I've said before, it's our lexicon. We're going to get into some key vocabulary terms, uh, step up our literacy game uh, for today's episode, Manuel. So let's get into it. Yeah, sounds great. Let's get our learn on. Let's learn some new terms. Jeff, what's the first term for today? All right, Manuel, first up for today. This is it's a very school related term, which is big brother. Ah, big brother. I have a big brother. I love my big brother. He's been such a great big brother. Um, so I, I assume this is going to be a story about siblings and the supportive nature of having older siblings to help 
help you um, progress through the education system and, and do all that good stuff? Yeah, I have a wonderful big brother too, Manuel, and it just it warms the heart, you know, to think about the the love between siblings, the the fraternity, the brotherhood. It's great, right? And we're not going to talk about that at all today, <laughs> because uh, this is the other big brother, uh, more in the Orwellian sense uh, of of big brother. Um, so we have a fascinating story um, which uh, comes to us, um, and well, out of Ed Surge uh, by an article by Jeffrey Young. So let's get into this. Uh, more and more schools are adopting electronic hall pass systems and saying goodbye to the days of written passes or laminated hall passes. A growing selling point is that this helps schools counteract problems exacerbated by social media, including those dreaded TikTok-inspired school vandalism trends uh, that were everywhere earlier this school year. Proponents say electronic passes are an easy way uh, easy win to help prevent students from abusing more informal paper systems. New Kensington Arnold School District in Pennsylvania is among those that have adopted digital hall passes. Students who want to use the restroom or visit a school office pull up an app on their school-issued iPad and then bring it to the teacher who keys in an access code to grant permission. A digital timer then begins to tick up, showing how long they've been out of the class, along with other details of the request. School officials can change settings in the electronic hall pass system to prevent certain students from getting a pass at the same time. And the system can notify officials if a student is asking to leave class without unusual, uh, with unusual frequency. Monica Bulger, a senior fellow at Sesame Workshop, shout out to Sesame Workshop, who studies child rights, says she worries that data collected from these passes could be used to unfairly target students based on the biases of officials. Quote, for the most vulnerable populations in schools, what are the unintended consequences? Are there usual adolescent things that teens engage in that are now going to be penalized more harshly? End quote. A petition circulating at Lewisburg Area High School signed by nearly 200 people calls these systems, quote, creepy, arguing that students don't that students don't deserve the extra stress of considering how their bathroom break will be perceived by others when they leave the classroom. So, Dr. Rustin, we have uh, the magic of digital hall passes. No more crusty uh, just germ fest of a, you know, of a plastic thing you got to carry with you or a giant serving spoon with a key on the end of it or, <laughs> or a vest that you got to wear or any of that stuff. We're going straight iPad, iPhone, uh, hall pass here. What possibly could we not like about this, Dr. Rusty? Right. What what could we what could go wrong here? Collecting data on students' uh, restroom use, student, underage students, uh, I might add, and who knows where the data goes. And again, we just have to believe them when they say that the data is uh, doesn't follow the student and that the data isn't connected to any um, individual name or, or identification. Um, yeah, no, f that. I, I don't like this at all. I don't like this at all. It does not sound good. Just let the kids go to the bathroom. Just let them use the restroom. Now, if you are building a school with a humanizing, loving community focus. And if you are building a school that centers students and their families and members of the community in the operations of the school, then you could find ways to make restroom going or restroom usage and, and other uh, you know, reasons for giving passes, find ways to make that um, 
just like work without needing to be big brother and without needing to surveil them digitally. Now, if we have enough folks in, if you do have a, a school campus that I, I understand there are school campuses where it's a problem. Students are out there, students are using their cell phones to coordinate, getting out at the same time as their buddies and they're not going to the restroom, they're doing other things. I understand that there are definitely campuses where safety is the issue, where vandalism is the issue, all those things. If we build a school system where we have enough resources to have enough members of the community and enough uh, support staff who are across the campus to help students with their various needs, um, that for one makes it a little more difficult for students to be up to nefarious things on campus. And secondly, like the students that I've had, I'm a high school teacher. I understand it's a little different for you know different age groups, but the students who I've had who have had who have been quote unquote frequent flyers in terms of trying to get a lot of passes, uh, nine times out of ten, that is resolved through building a relationship. With that student and talking to that student and understanding a little bit more about their perspective and understanding that certain students, it's not that they need to go to the restroom, they just need a break from that environment. They just need a break from the classroom and having a understanding with certain students. And there's a, I have a few students where the understanding is like, I know that you are a quote unquote frequent flyer and the school has flagged you as such. And I trust that if I let you take a break from my class, that you will return quickly and that you are just taking a quick break. And, you know, just keep doing that and I could trust you and you could trust me. That has resolved the issue nine times out of 10, actually 10 times out of 10 for me this school year. So yeah, I don't like this at all. I don't like the idea of bringing in a, a for-profit technology firm to monitor students' restroom usage and to tie it to iPads and all that stuff. I just, I don't know, it sounds creepy, like the kid said in that petition. What are your thoughts? <laughs> yes, yeah, so I will admit, Manuel, I'm actually a little bit more torn about this story than, uh, than I thought I was going to be when I started reading the article. So I agree, there, the creepy potential for this is extremely high, okay? Both from the standpoint of like, who is this company? What data do they have? I don't believe, frankly, I don't have any evidence for this, Manuel, other than the fact that I know how capitalism works. And I don't believe that these for-profit companies who are collecting data, massive troves of data on students, that they're not using that data to weaponize it against kids or uh, generate massive profit for themselves. Um, and maybe they're waiting to do that until the kids turn 18 or something, but like, I don't know, man, best believe somebody's getting paid off that data. So, uh, I, you know, I think we don't have any meaningful regulatory system in place that actually governs these data companies um, on what they do. So I'm just inherently suspicious of that. Um, but putting that aside, okay, let's assume like they're not recording the data. And honestly, it's not even that robust a set of data. Um, so let's set that aside for a moment, Manuel. Um, I do think there is the potential to like over criminalize students for stuff that we used to just let go because we didn't have a data point about. Right. And so I worry about that as being the kind of, um, the nudging effect of this system that it, you know, the nudging effect it would have on our other punitive systems of discipline in schools, right? Um, that we would be sort of surfacing more areas for conflict and tension with kids that are like, maybe just not that necessary. And I do think there were some interesting points raised uh, in the article, Manuel, about potential benefits um, of this system that I do think are like, you know, could be interesting, right? So if we have students that we know are like getting into stuff and coordinating and this kind of thing, the ability to say like, hey, these four kids can't all have a hall pass at the same time, that kind of thing is virtually impossible to coordinate um, in a school without going super draconian, right? Without right. saying you can't go to the bathroom, which is like an intolerable uh, 
policy solution, right? In many ways. So this could, I could see the benefit um, in that kind of situation. And it does offer like a new set of tools to a school and to educators that like could be positive, right? And could, could be helpful um, and actually in some ways maybe make the experience of certain kids less punitive uh, in some ways, right? I also think that it is interesting, like the people who do the work in the hallways, right? Supervising the bathrooms and these sorts of things. Sometimes like you, you're not necessarily equipped with enough information to do the work well in a way that doesn't surface lots of bias. So in the article, it gave this example of like, you know, an administrator sees a kid and they're like, well, that's a good kid. So I'm just, I'm not gonna sweat them about this, right? But I see another kid and I'm like, hey, where's your pass? And you know, this sort of like subjectivity and, and unfairness, which we know teenagers are like, why are you, you know, they're hypersensitive to, right? Um, it could help even the playing field, right? We, we, everyone has a pass or doesn't, right? And we can tell like on this digital list here. Um, and we also know how long you've been out of class because on bigger campuses, you know, kids could take a five minute walk across campus to the furthest bathroom and be like, oh, I got a pass, you know, and, and you don't know all 2000 kids schedules off the top of your head, right? Just seeing a kid in the hallway and knowing that like, actually your third period class is a quarter mile away from here. Like you should, be, you know, go to the bathroom on the other side of campus, or that sort of thing. So. I can see some benefits, right? That yeah. actually could make the system more fair. So that's where I feel, you know, a bit torn. I think if I had to choose right now, I would say the, the potential negatives maybe outweigh the potential positives, but I would actually love to hear both from the educators at these schools that are using it now and the kids and families about like, how is it actually going? Cause I think it's like ambiguous enough that I'm curious. Yeah. Yeah, no, absolutely. Certainly, I'd like to hear how it is to teach in that environment, but more importantly, to be a student in that environment. From the petition yeah. that we mentioned here, this it sounded like the students were saying that they're feeling a bit of pressure around like how their request to go to the restroom is going to be received, given that, you know, how it lines up with other previous requests and just building this, <laughs> building a, a, a bank of data about their their own usage of the restroom or or whatever else is going on. Like, you know, we don't need students having to worry about that. But I hear you on the potential benefits. Um, that leads me to think, okay, well then, how about the next step from that? If, if we normalized hall passes that are iPad electronic hall passes, then perhaps the next step is, you know what, keying in these access codes and doing all that, that's kind of extra. How about we just GPS tag their student IDs so that they can uh, walk in and out. Like those, you know, those Amazon uh, grocery stores or whatever, where you don't have to like yeah, log in, yeah. you just walk around and it automatically tracks you. Like, cause that would be the next step, right? Cause that would be even easier. And you know, just why I just, why even step in that direction if we can address student needs and concerns in a, in a way that like perhaps gets to the bottom of why they want to be out of the classroom so, so much. But in any case, yeah, definitely. I, I, I see the benefits there, but I'm more concerned about the drawbacks. So, yeah. Yeah. Now I, I feel you and that you are, you are 100% right to be suspicious of this. Even if it turns out to be great, like you're still right to be suspicious. Um, but since you brought, since you brought up those Amazon stores, did you see Manuel non sequitur here? Did you see the Saturday Night Live skit oh, yeah. they did? About yep. That was perfect. That was perfect. Hell yeah. That was Perfect. So hilarious, man. Uh, shout out to whoever thought of that, because I was definitely having similar thoughts uh, about that system. I was like, mm, won't be shopping there anytime soon. So, nope. <laughs> yeah.
Cool. All right, Jeff. Well, that was the first term for our lexicon today. Next up, we have another term, another term here, and this is um, mashup. Mashup. Nice. Uh, makes me think of uh, Thanksgiving dinner, mashed potatoes, <laughs> you know, gonna mash them up, uh, get, the, get the masher, elbow grease, uh, good old fashioned. I'm, I'm not really into the blender, I mean, uh, hand mixer usage. I'm all about the old school, uh, get your buys and tries involved. All right. Interesting. Get the masher. Get the masher. Get some elbow grease going. Yeah, this has nothing yeah. to do with that, but this is a <laughs> mashup of two different stories, both related to education, both related to housing. And we thought it'd be interesting to kind of take a look at, at the, the juxtaposition of both of them together because, of course, we've talked about or we've spoken on the show about housing and the challenges of, of the housing crisis on our students and our teachers. So here we go. Um, this is the combination of two stories, one from an Airbnb press release and the second story from Michael Burke and Emma Gallegos for EdSource. Now, the company Airbnb recently announced a partnership with the nation's largest teachers union, the National Education Association, to support teachers in becoming Airbnb hosts as a way to supplement their income. Teachers who are NEA members and are first-time Airbnb hosts will receive a one-time $100 stipend, a hosting curriculum written by and for educators, and a 10% discount on Airbnb experiences, which are in-person and online adventures and activities. The press release reads, quote, one in five Airbnb hosts who are employed are either educators or healthcare workers. For these members of our community, hosting not only provides a way for them to further leverage their passion for caring for others, but also earn additional income by doing so. This, of course, comes as more and more regions face a housing crisis that is largely spurred by escalating housing costs. And Michael Burke and Emma Gallegos in EdSource report that the California Department of Finance has recommended tens of millions of dollars in funding to go to four community colleges to construct more affordable dorm style housing for their community college students. Traditionally, community college students in California's in California commute to their campuses. Only 11 of the state's 116 community colleges currently offer student housing of some sort. And this new, uh, the new housing projects that are proposed here still need to be approved by the state legislature. But if that happens, that would add about 1,300 beds across the four colleges. That would represent a significant expansion of the housing that is currently offered. One of the colleges that may receive this additional funding is Sierra College, which is just north of Sacramento. Shout out to Sactown. It currently has dorm style residence hall, a dorm style residence hall with about 120 beds and a very, very long wait list. College president Willie Duncan said, quote, from all our research, the two biggest factors that impact student success are housing and transportation. Students can't overcome if they don't have those. So, Jeff, when we normally think of residence halls and dorms, we tend to think four year colleges, not community colleges. And certainly when we think about teacher housing, we tend not to think about teachers as Airbnb hosts, but here is a union forming a partnership with Airbnb to help teachers learn how to host and get some added benefit in doing that. So what are your thoughts here around this housing situation? Yeah, well, um, I have a, a range of thoughts. The first and foremost thought is let's give everybody the housing that they need affordably, okay? Because Housing is literally a human right, okay? Like when we think about the basic human needs, right? What are they, boys and girls? Uh, food, 
clothes and shelter, okay? Like literally, and that's, that's of course, you know, alongside the more uh, Maslow's hierarchy of needs, right? Uh, of love and, you know, self-actualization, all that good stuff. But you can't get to a lot of that other stuff if you don't have food, clothes, and shelter, okay? Uh, so why we're not providing housing for community college students is beyond me. It's crazy. I think it's just reflective of the fact that we have that actually the most inequitable part of our education system, which is not to let us in the K-12 world off the hook. But I would argue the most inequitable part of our education system in this country is higher ed, and it's not even close, okay? We literally segregate higher ed entirely from, from top to bottom. We fund community colleges at dramatically lower rates than we fund you know, our fancy, uh, most elite four-year um, schools. This is true at the, uh, in the state systems across the country, also true in the private uh, systems as well. So like, of course, this is a good idea. Community college students are almost by definition the most vulnerable students in the higher ed system. Now that's not to say that they're, you know, everyone is uh, deeply struggling necessarily, right? But like almost by definition, these are the folks who had, uh, you know, greater struggles academically, who tend to be in situations where they have to work uh, to support family or have other like complicating home circumstance situations. Of course, they could benefit from stable housing. And we know a huge chunk of them are literally like homeless or in transitional housing. So of course, this is a great idea. We should expand it across the board to provide it as a universal option for anyone who needs it because a civilized society invests in its people to get educated so they can, you know, live good empowered lives and be able to contribute to their community, to this democracy, to the society, all of their talents and genius. Okay, end of story on that one for me. Now the teacher Airbnb situation now well. Um, folks might have caught some of those screenshots, beautiful detective work uh, from Dr. Rustin uh, <laughs> from the NEA website, which apparently they have taken down. And I just double checked here. Still down. OK, uh, so this is not a good look <laughs> in my mind. I, I know they want to spin it as like, well, educators, many of them are off in the summer. So while you're traveling France and, and Ghana and, and Tokyo over the summer, you can you know, rent out your apartment and make some money on the side. And that sounds great. And I'm pretty sure that's not really <laughs> what's happening here at scale. Even in the article, it talks about a teacher who was like really excited to participate in Airbnb because they made an additional $20,000 a year, which sounds great, on top of their $30,000 a year teaching salary, okay? <laughs> so, so, so you're still like yeah. barely middle class at the end of the day, right? Uh, depending on what part of the country you live in, right? I mean, if you live here in LA, $50,000 a year, you could hardly afford an apartment on $50,000 a year without some kind of assistance here in this city, okay? Where one bedrooms are going for $3,000 a month. So this is like, this is reflective of the larger issue, which maybe NEA should spend a little more time on, which is how do we make sure teachers actually get paid what they are worth, a dignified professional wage to do the incredibly important essential frontline work that they do. Yeah. So, you know, whatever, cool coupons for Airbnb, love it and all, but like, let's not bury the lead here. Pay the teachers, man. And how yeah. about the union focus on that? 
Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, folks know we edit these shows and, you know, take some time. And part of that is the visual experience and showing uh, images of what we are talking about. And I went to the NEA website, which had its little um, part, the NEA member benefits website, which had its um, page about this new partnership with Airbnb. And I took a whole bunch of screenshots for the episode. And I went back there today because I wanted to double check some stuff and boom, it's gone. So I don't know if it's gone permanently or if they realize, you know, let's just uh, pull it down until the heat is, is, is past us. Or if like there's maybe just a technical glitch and, you know, maybe it'll be right back up. But folks watching the show, watching the video version, either on YouTube or watching the video on Spotify, you could see what the uh, NEA member benefits website was saying about this Airbnb partnership. Let me just read one part of it that, that stood out to me. And um, it's obviously showing right now on the video if you're watching, but it says, um, earn extra income as an Airbnb host. And it says, share your skills. Whether you have a spare room or a whole house, someone is looking for a place like yours. The skills that help you run a classroom can help you host. Okay, okay. I wish, I wish <laughs> that the income, the income that came with me running a classroom allowed me to have extra properties that I could put out there on Airbnb and make extra income from, but um, it certainly doesn't. We have talked about the looming teacher shortage and we know that teachers, especially newer teachers, folks who are newer to the profession, are struggling to, to have a place that they own in the first place, let alone a spot that they could lease out while they go on their vacations or while they live in a, a, their main place or whatever. So there, I'm sure there are teachers more on the veteran side across the nation who maybe do have uh, extra property that they could benefit from Airbnb from, but that's not the majority of teachers. And this is not the time, this is not the time uh, to be setting up those partnerships. Like read the room, read the room. Folks are struggling. Struggling. Teachers are struggling. Students are struggling. If you are a teacher who has extra property somewhere to, to rent out an Airbnb, consider not doing Airbnb. Consider renting it to an actual family that needs stable housing. Consider doing that instead of taking part in the privatization of just all the, the real estate that we have in the sense that folks are, are using Airbnb instead of renting to families and then using that money to inflate their own income and then housing costs and rental costs in certain areas are just like skyrocketing because like why rent to somebody on a month by month if you could just rent Airbnb day by day or weekend by weekend and charge even more and make even more money like it's an escalating crisis please don't take part in it if you can afford not to take part in it and as far the as far as the dorms for community college students I love that like I'm sure many folks would have stayed in college in community college if they had stable housing and could just walk to class and get that aspect of the college experience. So I'm all for that. I really do wish though, I wish we didn't have to continue to use like our public funding to try to address what is a, a real crisis in real estate crisis um, thanks to unfettered capitalism because our public funding for these a few you know a few extra dorms at these community colleges that's like a drop in the bucket when you look at the housing crisis across California and across the nation and I would love to see more action and activity on stopping folks from hoarding um, apartments or hoarding houses to stop corporations from coming in. And, you know, I saw some story on 60 Minutes about a corporation that owns like 30,000 units across the U.S. And, and they're all about getting as much property as possible and then renting it out and not letting folks purchase that property. Like, I would like to see more action activity on stopping those folks who have a wealth of resource from driving up this housing crisis rather than drops in the bucket to help folks at the bottom. But however, of course, I am all for dorms on community colleges like this. Make that a reality. This make that just a normal thing. So, yeah. Yeah. Yep. I agree, man. Um, we we can do better. 
we should do better. Uh, you know, Teachers in Minneapolis just finished striking. Teachers in Sacramento, uh, hopefully by the time this recording hits the air, will be done striking. Okay, like yep. folks are literally out here in these streets to get livable, you know, fair, just wages for their very important, critical democracy enabling labor. Maybe the focus of the union should be on a slightly different area. <laughs> well, yeah. that, that's all I'm saying. For sure, for sure. Um, all right, folks, we will try to link that NEA member benefits uh, Airbnb page under this episode. And you can see for yourself if it takes you to that page or if it kicks you back to the the uh, front page of the entire NEA member benefits, because that's what it keeps doing to me. In any case, all of our stories, all of the things that we referenced linked below this video or below this podcast if you're listening. And that about does it for today's Do Now. As always, folks, feel free to reach out to us. And let us know your thoughts on this. You know, If you teach in a school that has an electronic hall pass, let us know what, it, what it's like and what you've been seeing in terms of students, um, how it's impacted them. And certainly if you are in the Airbnb game and feel like we didn't do a good enough job of, of highlighting the benefits of Airbnb, um, I guess you could message us, but I'm, I'm not really here for that. But, you know, <laughs> message Jeff, message Jeff. All right, folks, that about does it for today's Do Now. Up next, seminar on a totally non-controversial topic, which is um, something called critical race theory. I don't know if y'all have heard of it, but um, we're going to explore up next with Dr. Yvette Butler. Stay tuned. All right, folks, welcome to today's seminar. We are so excited to have you here with us today. And we have a guest here today who I think is perhaps uh, one of the most unique individuals in the landscape of American education. Uh, she is the sole professor uh, teaching critical race theory, actual, real critical race theory um, at the University of Mississippi School of Law. We have Professor Yvette Butler with us. Uh, professor Butler, welcome to All the Above. Great, thanks so much for having me. Yeah, well, folks, let me tell you a little bit more about Professor Butler. Uh, Yvette Butler is an assistant professor at the University of Mississippi School of Law. She teaches constitutional law, civil rights, critical race theory, gender law, and privacy law. Her scholarship examines the devaluation and criminalization of survival strategies engaged in by racial and gender minorities who often live in poverty. Her projects have centered commercial sexual labor in order to critique the issues like social vulnerability, labor, criminal penalties, constitutional protections, and storytelling, especially narrative dichotomies. Before joining academia, Professor Butler was a litigator for a civil rights firm, a policy director for a nonprofit providing services to people engaged in commercial sex, and a director of strategic change for a national nonprofit focused on economic justice for survivors of domestic and sexual violence. Uh, Professor Butler, once again, welcome. So glad to have you here, and I'm going to kick it over to Manuel for our first question. All right, Professor Butler in the building. Thank you so much for taking time out to be here with us here on All of the Above, especially during these very tumultuous, challenging times. Uh, we very much appreciate uh, having you here today for sure. And um, frankly, you hold one of the most interesting and unique positions in education across the United States, as Jeffrey just said, um, being the professor of Law 743, which is the sole course on critical race theory 
at the University of Mississippi School of Law, which is, of course, the, the flagship university in a state that is very much associated with America's uh, history of slavery and Jim Crow and, and white supremacist violence. So during these times, amid the backlash against so-called CRT and the efforts to undermine the truthful teaching of history in our courses and efforts to really suppress critical dialogue and conversations around, around race in our classrooms across the US. We wanna start by just asking, like, how are you right now? What, what's it been like? What's it like to, to hold your position and do the work that you do amid such intense, partisan, just, um, just nonsense? <laughs> yeah, thanks so much for that question and i feel like that's so hard to answer <laughs> i mean right now i'm great because you know i i guess we finally have a bill that is sitting on the governor's desk ready to be signed so there is some peace in sort of knowing okay like this is the actual thing we're against because <laughs> i think before when it was just introduced by the Senate, there were, you know, there were a lot of concerns about, okay, what is this going to end up being? Like, are there going to be amendments that are going to be, you know, like right now the law is really broad and vague and I know we'll get into that. Um, so there were a lot of concerns like, is could this be written worse? Like, could the law that actually ends up on the books end up being horrible? Um, so now I'm great. It's been a little bit of a roller coaster, um, but you know, basically on the other end. Yeah, well, it's good to hear that you are you're doing well, Professor Butler. And um, honestly, you know, Manuel and I we occupy a, a small space in the in the world of uh, sort of media and uh, you know YouTube and that sort of thing. But even we in our small space are you know are sometimes the target of some real right wing backlash and. Um, you know, we our our heart definitely goes out to folks who are in uh, positions where you know where some of that may be coming your way as well. And so glad to hear you are doing well, and and hope um, you know hope that very much continues. Um, so you know, the next question we want to ask here really gets at I I think kind of the crux of a lot of this issue, uh, which is that there's been this sort of national performative outrage uh, against so-called CRT. Uh, and I think that, uh, you know, that outrage has revealed in many ways that the folks who are uh, the strongest opponents of so-called CRT are uh, neither interested in actually understanding what CRT is, nor actually engaging in any kind of good faith conversation about uh, about what this theory is, what its applications are to learning, either in higher ed or in the K-12 system, um, that really this, this, you know, this theory, this content, this discipline has been just sort of made a, a boogeyman in our, in our national conversation. Um, and we're wondering if, for the sake of our, our audience here, um, and to just draw on your expertise and scholarship, if you can kind of share with us um, how do you explain what critical race theory actually is to folks and its sort of relevance to um, curriculum and law school curriculum more broadly? Yeah, that's a great question. And I think you're right that the focus on critical race theory hasn't been, you know, like an intelligent investigation of some of its claims 
and then interacting with those claims in like a genuine way. Um, it has really been more of just trying to paint critical race theory, you know, something that was born in the legal academy in the late 70s, in early 80s, um, as just like this inherently racist, divisive concept that has no redeeming qualities. Uh, so whenever I try to explain to somebody, you know, what critical race theory is, I usually say that um, it is trying to look at, you know, after the civil rights movement, after we got um, various laws on the books that, um, you know, prohibited discrimination on the basis of race, sex, national origin, things like that, um, racial inequality continued. And so it's sort of asking the question of if colorblindness was supposed to be our savior, why are we still here? <laughs> like, why do, why do we still very clearly have racial inequalities? Um, so that, so critical race theory and, you know, folks who, which, you know, I guess for the sake of conversation, I'll just call critical race theorists, even though not everybody who theorizes about race takes on the name critical race theorist. But in general, critical race theorists try to get at the issue of, okay, why? So like in general, um, critical race theory adheres to, you know, basic tenets of, all right, so colorblindness isn't our savior here. But just because we're talking about race doesn't mean, or like just because we're being race conscious doesn't mean that that's a bad thing. <laughs> like we can be race conscious in a good way, particularly when we're talking about, um, you know, like historical um, groundings of racism and how it continues to persist. Like you can't have that conversation in a race neutral way and at all be honest about it. Um, it argues that race is a social construct um, and really the biology around race doesn't have any like real scientific grounding. Like sure, we can talk about ancestry, but that is not how law has talked about race. Like law has talked about race in terms of these foundations of, you know, like uh, black inferiority. <laughs> um, and so like all people from this one continent are inferior. Um, and so particularly in drafting like immigration laws, um, I actually just <laughs> posted a very long Twitter thread the other day about this, <laughs> um, how uh, courts have tried to define who counts as white for the purposes of immigration. So there will be times like, oh, one year Iranians are white, four years later they're not. Um, and so how we're all over the place. So yeah, those are just like some basic um, foundational principles as to what CRT is and sort of where it starts from in its analysis. Yeah, I really appreciate that, that uh, explanation there because obviously the, the discussions out there around it are so maligned and so um, just frankly wrong and erroneous about what, what critical race theory is. And there's so much 
fear and hatred out there around it that has been whipped up. And one of the outcomes of that are these bills that we're seeing. And you mentioned uh, one bill for your state in Mississippi that uh, looks like it's currently ready for for final approval. And I just want to read a piece of that bill and and get your thoughts on what the implications of this particular legislation might be for courses courses like yours. So this is uh, Mississippi uh, Senate Bill 2113, which just went into law. And it reads... In part, quote, no public institution of higher learning, community junior college, school district or public school, including public charter schools, shall direct or otherwise compel students to personally affirm, adopt or adhere to any of the following tenets. A, that any sex, race, ethnicity, religion or national origin is inherently superior or inferior or B, that individuals should be adversely treated on the basis of their sex, race, ethnicity, religion, or national origin. Now, based on the text of that law and based on what you just explained to us, um, critical race theory largely focuses on, it, it sounds like the law doesn't overtly ban necessarily a critical race theory or overtly prevent folks from utilizing that uh, theoretical uh, framework. So we want to get your thoughts about the what you consider to be the the true political ramifications of this language and how you think it might actually affect your course, um, because we know that this language was directed at courses and teaching such as as uh, what takes place in your classroom. Yeah, um, and you're right. I think, especially based on what I just said about you know critical race theory, saying, look, sure we're talking about racial hierarchies, but why would anybody, particularly a critical race theorist, argue that any race is inherently inferior or superior? Because then you would end up arguing that white people are superior when really we're just like, actually, the way that the law has been constructed has created these hierarchies, um, point to hundreds of laws over the years. <laughs> um, and so, like, that's what we're talking about. And so, none of this is inherent. So, yeah, I think the way that I think the way that the bill is written was written that way to score political points because right now, you know, Republicans all over are demonizing critical race theory, not knowing or caring what it is um, because it resonates with their base. I think, you know, which I think critical race theory would have a lot to say about the resonance in part because we have such a hard time talking about race in this country. So whenever race comes up, it makes people feel really uncomfortable. Um, so yeah, great. Like let's, let's draft this law that sounds fine on its face because in general, sure, like nobody should be teaching anybody that anybody's inherently inferior or superior. Um, but also, if that were really the goal, small tangent here, <laughs> um, like some of the proposed amendments were about, well, if that's the goal, shouldn't we then say that no gender identity or no sexual orientation is inherently inferior or superior? And the folks in charge of drafting this bill were extremely opposed to that, mm. probably because we can see <laughs> that they're writing bills very specifically going for um, people who are LGBTQ. 
So like, it's not actually about any sort of equity. Um, And as far as how the bill would or wouldn't affect my class, (laughs) um, I don't think it's going to affect it at all. (laughs) And in fact, you know, and I'm not, I'm not trying to be too, I don't know what the word to even use here. Like, I'm not trying to be, (laughs) I'm going to use a very loaded term of troublemaker, but like good trouble (laughs) Um, by saying I plan now to, in order to be able to explain to all of my students how conversations about race or gender are not in violation of this bill. I now have to teach all of them the general concepts of critical race theory um, so that they understand that I'm not violating the bill just by having honest conversations about things that literally happen. Um, And I think it's my responsibility as a legal educator um, to inform the next generation of lawyers, you know, like, what we what we primarily learn in law school is founded on a particular school of thought, but that is not the only way to think about these issues. And I think it's doing them an incredible disservice to pretend that what they learn in law school is the only way to think about any issue. And it just makes them less creative, less critical thinkers, to pretend that that's the case and not expose them to other schools of thought, whether it's critical race theory, feminist legal theory, whatever. Hmm. And to that point, uh, Professor Butler, are there any sort of uh, murmurings or you know water cooler conversation amongst uh, you know faculty members doing similar work uh, to what to what you're doing? Uh, about what the potential longer term consequences could be in the sense of, you know, what happens if this if this bill is indeed signed into law? What happens a year from now if someone lodges a complaint about, uh, you know, something they heard in, in one of your classes or, or that sort of thing? Is there are you hearing anything? Are you uh, planning ahead for or worried about any of the potential chilling effect of this type of law? Yeah, and and I know I opened this by saying that I am fine now, <laughs> um, but part of part of what this law does, like you mentioned, there's a concern for a chilling effect. Um, I had already felt that chilling effect in one of my classes. Well, a couple of my classes. Um, so, like for example, this semester, I also teach an honors class. So, like undergraduates who are interested in attending law school, will sign up for this class, Intro to U.S. Law and Reasoning. Um, On the day that we covered Brown v. Board, where I would usually bring up, um, you know, some thoughts by critical race theorists on the pushback to Brown um, and other ways to think about Brown and whether it really accomplished all we were hoping it would accomplish, um, which it didn't, as you two probably know because there was all sorts of de facto segregation after Brown, um, or sorry, de facto segregation after Brown, um, where schools ended up even more segregated than before. Um, You know, like I didn't, I was afraid of what would happen 
if we talked about that. So like, I didn't end up talking to them and then I felt terribly. Um, and I was like, I just deprived them of vital information <laughs> that they would do well by hearing about because this happened. And there are people who talk about how and why that happened. Um, so later, you know, I decided like, no, this is a time to be courageous. And I suppose if I get fired, I'll just go back to being a lawyer. Um, so I was honest with them. And I was like, look, you guys, I'm really sorry. Um, I should have talked to you about this. Here are some of the things that I would have said. Um, and I know around campus. So one of the things that critical race theory does is draw a lot from the social sciences, like psychology, sociology, um, and there are a variety of professors in other disciplines who don't have a class specifically titled critical race theory, but who, you know, talk about things like implicit bias, talk about biases in the criminal system. Um, uh, I know there was a pharmacy professor, I believe it was, who had responded to my Twitter thread from the other day saying like, he's afraid that because he has to talk about how there are at least ancestral differences in health, that that's going to impact what, what his students learn about how to be good healthcare workers. Um, so there, there is a lot of fear, even in higher ed, where we often have a lot more academic freedom about what is going to happen. And essentially the bill gives the state the ability to withhold funds for teachers or like for schools if anybody violates the bill. So there's a really a concern that the state auditor will come a knocking um, and say like, I've gotten complaints and now I need to get up all, all up in your business and cause you major headaches to find out if you're violating this law. Mm. Yeah. And that's only just a little bit fascist, I suppose. So, uh, <laughs> yeah. Well, I um, thank you for sharing that uh, that perspective with us. And uh, I think in the K twelve system, we are experiencing, uh, I would say, in some cases, similar chilling effects, and in other cases, frankly, just much more draconian, uh, you know, enforcement mechanisms. Uh, you know, in the state of New Hampshire, where there's a you know a way that families and students can report you to the state. Uh, you know, in places like Florida, where there's, you know, they're outlawing making white students uncomfortable uh, by having honest conversations about history. So um, I think we uh, certainly in the K-12 system can empathize with um, with the, both the kind of uh, chilling effect uh, experience that you're having and also morally grappling with like our duty to teach truth uh, in the classroom. So appreciate hearing your, your perspective. And that's maybe a good segue into our next question, which, um, which really gets back to conversations Manuel and I have been having here on the show for quite some time now. And, and my personal, at least, belief that uh, I think we made a mistake, at least in the K-12 space, uh, in how we have responded to the disingenuous, you know, anti-CRT attacks. Um, and what we've mostly seen is people saying, you know, of course, what they're saying about CRT is blown out of proportion, is untrue, is disingenuous. 
But the reality is critical race theory isn't being taught, right? No one's teaching critical race theory in kindergarten. No one's teaching critical race theory even in high school because critical race theory is a, you know, a legal, a field of legal scholarship. And so this is really a, a graduate level uh, intellectual exercise that, you know, the students go through. This isn't something you would have to be worried about your, your innocent elementary school student encountering because it's too sophisticated for them or it's, you know, it's just being taught in, in graduate schools. My personal belief has been that that was like a strategic kind of tactical error um, both because I think it, it offers complicity in the idea that critical race theory is actually somehow bad or dangerous, and that because it's bad or dangerous, we are shielding our young, innocent children from it. Um, and also because, honestly, and this is just my take, I think it's actually uh, just not exactly true in terms of the extent to which the ideas, the concepts, the, the kind of fundamental principles of critical race theory do actually inform lots of spaces in education for young people, particularly if you have schools or educators who are, uh, who are approaching their teaching in any type of uh, culturally responsive or anti-racist way. And while we may not have you know, fifth graders reading the texts that students in your law school class are reading, um, we certainly have kids thinking about history um, with a somewhat similar lens in many cases um, to how your students may be thinking about it. So that, I'll get off my soapbox now and, and say that is my take. I'm curious uh, if you would agree um, with that perspective or if you have a different take and, and you know, what you think we should be doing in, in, more broadly as like a community of educators to respond to these attacks against critical race theory. So I think that's a, that's a great question and actually something that I've, like, I've been thinking a lot about recently because I, because um, there are so many ways that the concepts of critical race theory have made it to and been circulating throughout the public consciousness for a while. So, like, it is not just this year or last year that people have been talking about structural racism or the fact that there doesn't just have to be an individual bad actor and that's the only time racism ever happens. Like it is not just the last two years that people have been talking about intersectionality, which, you know, like was one of the founding ideas of CRT from Kimberly Crenshaw. <laughs> and so, you know, like it, it has also been my recent strategy to say like, you know, that, like a lot of us actually agree with these ideas, right? <laughs> um, and that like a lot of us have already been thinking and talking about these ideas that were born in CRT, but people don't necessarily think about as CRT, um, just in the same way that, you know, we don't call law school, you know, like, oh, well, this is where we learn about legal formalism, or this is where we learn about legal realism. Like we just call it law and legal analysis. Um, so, yeah, so, but when I think about K through 12, and, you know, I would love to be educated by either of you on this, um, is that critical race theory proper 
is not taught just because once you get into it's like once you get over the barrier of here is in general where CRT starts from and actually get into, you know, sure, let's talk about whiteness as property. <laughs> like let's read um, Cheryl Harris's whiteness as property. Let's go over the way that we have used um, property law, um, um, other, gosh, I'm blanking on all of the different types of law now. Um, but like, for example, reputation, um, there are a variety of court cases where if you allege that a white person is not white, they can sue you for defamation, but it doesn't work the other way around, like for non, for like a black person to be called white. So like the various ways that um, like court cases and statutes have protected whiteness like, I don't think we talk about those concepts in K through 12. We don't even talk about them generally in law school outside of critical race theory. <laughs> so, I mean, I think you're right in that. Um, well, I mean, honestly, I haven't been in a K through 12 space since I was in K through 12. But like, in, I wouldn't be surprised to learn that in being culturally competent, teachers are talking about intersectionality or teachers make some reference to structural racism um, or something like that. But I don't think they are going into CRT to say, okay, well, let's talk about what Professor Derek Bell said about um, Brown v. Board and how it actually helped to maintain a system of white supremacy by just attacking one of the symptoms of white supremacy, which is segregation. Yeah. So, yeah, you can let me know. I would love to know your thoughts on <laughs> what is actually being taught. Yeah, certainly. Yeah, I mean, I I agree. I mean, many elements of and some of the particular tenets of critical race theory um, suggest point, like have a valued place in K-12, in classrooms that, especially classrooms that um, are really transformative spaces for for our most marginalized students to, to understand sort of um, just the role of, of race and racism in America's past and present. Um, but, you know, where I kind of differ or disagree a little bit with Jeff around it is that, you know, the response to the backlash to CRT, we saw such a, a misalignment of what like CRT actually means. And I, I feel like it was important to defend the legal framework for what it is and not let them just use this phrase as an umbrella term for anything dealing with race. That attempt clearly failed because it, it doesn't matter. Like, you know, critical race theory just goes, gets thrown around regardless. But yeah, throughout K-12 uh, spaces, especially in social sciences, especially in uh, ethnic studies courses and, and areas like that, critical race theory and elements of it are, are critically important to helping students understand the context of their their neighborhood, their community, their experiences, and, and just the world that we live in. But yeah, at the at the end of the day, sad to say, I think it, it almost didn't matter whether or not we focused on the CRT um, element itself, specifically the legal framework and whether that's in K-12 or just a broader discussion around like, is it right for young people to learn about race and racism? Um, it, it seemed like the backlash was so strong. It was going to tear through our classrooms one way or another. Um, but, but the, I think one of the, the, I don't know, bright sides of that is that we're getting more uh, testimonials from students about the value of learning about race and, and learning critical race theory. And, and that's really what directed us to you and in, in your work, because we're, of course, we're educators here in California. And, you know, honestly, we don't, 
I haven't been keeping up with what's happening in Mississippi, especially in Mississippi um, in law schools out there. So, you know, Jeff came across this article in Mississippi Today about you and, and the work that you do. And there was a testimonial in there from a, a white student who um, grew up in a politically conservative family. And the student, their, their testimony about um, the value of what they learned in your course was, was really wonderful. And I just want to read a bit of that and, and ask you a little bit more about like how your students are being impacted by, by learning these things. And, and the student said, quote, the most impactful and enlightening course I have taken throughout my entire undergraduate career and graduate ed education at the state of Mississippi's flagship university. Uh, that was uh, the student detailing her experiences in your course, your course as the most impactful um, out of all the courses that she took as an undergrad and a graduate student. So we're wondering if you could talk to us a little bit about, about that element. There's so much talk about CRT and whether or not it's dangerous or not, or, or are these things. But at the end of the day, when students are um, engaged in learning about these these concepts and and becoming uh, a little bit race conscious in the sense of of the role of race and racism in our our legal system and, and beyond that um, how have you seen it impact uh, your black students your other students of color and your white students yeah um, so I so I absolutely love the Mississippi Today article obviously it made me sound like a rock star so that's awesome um, <laughs> yeah. I actually had no idea it was in the works until it came out <laughs> and I was like oh like these are a lot of quotes that seem like somebody was taking a lot of notes in my class but that's cool um, <laughs> so I'm just glad like it turned out the way that it did so um, I almost feel like her statements are more powerful because I had no idea this was happening till it was published. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think that's pretty consistent with the evals that I got last year, which was also my first year at the University of Mississippi and my first year teaching CRT um, was sort of like, everybody needs to take this class, <laughs> like this should be required sort of comments. Um, and I really think that, you know, like if you, read the I don't know if her letter to the Mississippi House was linked in that article or not um, but one of the things that she felt like was really impactful was the fact that on maybe the first or second day we ended up having a conversation about how people like to refer to themselves in you know as like black versus african-american versus latino versus hispanic like um which one of the things she said was like, I've literally never been in a space where we have just had that conversation before. <laughs> and so like just the, and so I feel like one of the things that students have told me is really impactful is we can come into this space and just be honest or be straightforward or be explicit about what we're talking about. Um, which is new for them because <laughs> um, in a lot of, um, I mean, in a lot of spaces, either you're not supposed to bring up race or race is painted as irrelevant, um, particularly in the context of the law. <laughs> um, like one of the, one of the examples I like to give is, you know, contemporary legal thought, as I'll refer to it, um, will say something like, okay, well, would a reasonable person, like this objective reasonable person standard, um, would a reasonable person feel free to um, decline to let the police 
search their bag or decline to be interviewed by the police. Um, and a feminist legal theory perspective will say, well, hang on, like feminism, in feminism, we care a lot about power dynamics um, and consent is not the same thing as submission. So like, what are the power dynamics here? And is this, is somebody really consenting if they are submitting? Um, and the answer would be no. <laughs> and in critical race theory, it's also like, okay, but what is black, what, what do black people think about the police? How are they treated by the police? Can you actually say no to a police officer without putting your life in danger? Like this reasonable person is clearly like a middle-class white person who has only had positive experiences. Um, so I think just really being in a space where we can be honest about your experience as meaningful. Um, Cause that's also one of the things that critics of CRT throw around is like, you guys focus a lot on narrative and personal experience and what does this have to do with anything? But that's kind of the point <laughs> is that the lack of personal experience in contemporary legal reasoning has left a lot of people out. Um, so I think students sort of find the freedom to be creative again, to, to talk about things that have really happened to them, and to be honest about whether or not the law is actually working for everybody. And if it's not working for everybody, like, what should we be doing to change that? Yeah, well, uh, Professor Butler, um, you have given us so much to think about today, and I feel like we could uh, we could go on and on and on uh, in this conversation. Um, but I'm just tremendously grateful um, that you gave us your time today and shared some of your wisdom and expertise um, on this just really critical issue uh, in American education from preschool through graduate school. Um, that I think is uh, is really at the heart of some very fundamental questions about what we want education to be and how we want to function as a as a uh, hopefully democratic society. So um, thank you so much for joining us today, uh, Professor Butler. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. It was great to be here. All right, folks, that's it for today's seminar. Thanks so much for joining us. But stick around. Next up is our class dismissed. All right, folks, we've reached that time in our episode that is our class dismissed. It's when we like to pause for a moment, zoom out, give some love, shout outs and flowers to people out there in the broader world of education, just doing good things in the world. So, uh, Manuel, who we got for today's class dismissed? Well, Jeff, today we have a student that is or has built a pantry, a food pantry, at his high school. And, you know, this reminded me of a story that we did, I think a year or two back. And anytime I see a story about a student who sets up either a food pantry or a resource center at their own school site to help their fellow students who, who might be in need, I just, I just love seeing that, love seeing that. So we want to uh, shout out this student in Connecticut. So here we have Jeremiah Simeon, who's a senior at Norwalk High School in Connecticut. And his summer research project inspired him to create a food pantry, a food pantry at his school. Simeon studied food insecurity in 
Norwalk and found that the sources and quality of food available in different parts of his city were not equal. So with the help of a local service learning group and a $2,500 donation from a local supermarket, Simeon managed to get the project off the ground and stock the pantry with canned foods, cereals, pasta, and other goods. He said that his goal is to feed at least 40 families per week. Now it's currently just barely up and running, which is a big shout out to him. And he's hoping to expand it so that he could get 40 families a week, the food and, and resources that they need in order to just be able to sustain themselves and enjoy um, their own child's education and all that. So shout out to the student. Didn't have to do that. It could have just been a little service learning project in the summer and just left it at that. But nah, he, he brought it into the school year and made it a reality in terms of uh, fulfilling this need that he saw in his community. So shout out to Mr. Simeon. We see you. Good work. Good work. We love it. And um, yeah, much appreciation to you. Yeah, absolutely. I love these stories too, Manuel. And it's uh, it's just another example of the ways in which young people will show us the way, right? Um, yeah. And can lead and uh, and put all, all that boundless energy of youth, right, can be channeled into really positive, uh, positive things if given the space and the trust to, to do so. And so uh, love this story. Shout out um, to, uh, to this beautiful program out in Connecticut. Absolutely. So... Uh, thanks, uh, everybody, for joining us today on All the Above. Appreciate you making it with us to the end of the episode. Uh, we are so grateful that you're here. And we have one last ask for you, which is help us spread the word about All the Above. Make sure you check us out online. Go to our YouTube page. Get to our Twitter, our Facebook. We are at AOTA Show. Um, and all the links to our presence on Basically, every platform out there are on our website, which is aotashow.com. Again, that's aotashow.com. Thanks for the support, everybody. Thanks for joining us today. We'll see you next time.